Back in uh, 1966, Time Magazine, looking at what was going on with secularism in the world, eventually published one of their editions where the front page of the magazine read, God is dead. And they got it completely wrong because since uh, the 60s, world religions have actually grown faster than world population by and large. And I want to um, just give you some data as, you, as we think about this. Jay, if you could put up that slide for me with some of the data. I don't know how well you can see it, but I'm going to read the numbers to you for a second. Um, if you look, this is from a Pew Research back in 2015. But today in the world, they say that 31% of the world is Christian, which is 2.3 billion folks. That Islam comprises 24% at 1.8 billion. Hindus are 15% at 1.1 billion. Buddhists are 6.9% at 500 million. And the um, final category I'll kind of point out is just a little, the little sliver at the end you'll see is that um, Jews are 0.2% at 10 million in the world. And um, what we're doing right now, if you're new with us, is we're doing a sermon series where we're looking at world religions. And um, we're going to be talking about this. And part of the question I talked about last week, but people will get is like, we're in a Christian church. Why in the world are we talking about other religions? Well, there are a number of reasons. I would encourage you, if you weren't here last week, to go hear the whole sermon from last week. But I will tell you this. In our modern world, they are our neighbor, whether they are next door to you, whether they're across the planet, they're our neighbor is the first thing that I would say. And second, you'll understand a lot of what takes place in the world if we know these other religions. It will help you learn more about your own faith as you do some as we do some compare and contrast with it. And then finally, it kind of forces us to think about a theology of religion. So we'll which if you don't know what I'm talking about on that go listen to last week. And that's the majority of the sermon. So you'll, you'll learn on that. But there are lots of benefits for us looking at that. What we want to do in this is I want today, I'm going to, we're going to talk about Buddhism. You go back to that first slide, Jay. Um, I want to talk about what Buddhism is. And then I want to do compare and contrast. And we're going to do that each week, talking about some of the differences that we have with the various religions that we look at. And today we're going to look at, um, at Buddhism, as I said. And um, the problem we have with studying Buddhism a little bit is that there are an enormous number of versions of Buddhism in the world today. So what I'm going to do is go back, instead of talking about all those different ones, the big raft, the small raft, all the different things we, wanted, we could talk about, I'm going to go back to sort of the original version before it begins to spread and go all the different places and permutates. So you can kind of know where we're going with this. And I'm going to do it with what Buddhists would call um, the, the triple refuge is, uh, is how they do this. And the three things that are in the triple refuge is they would talk about the Buddha himself, the Dharma, which is his teaching, uh, and the Sangha, which is basically the Buddhist community. And I'm going to mainly talk about those first two. And kind of just lay out with their a quick overview of what they believe, you know, and, and we only have so much time, right? So you could, you could go on a whole course on this, but I'm going to give you a snapshot of it. For some of you, it's going to be reviewed. And for some of you, it's going to be the first time through it. But let me just kind of um, talk a little bit about it. The beginning place is to recognize um, this for a second. It, Buddhism is kind of unique in this way, because if you were to go look at, which I've done, and you were to go look at the word religion in any of the main dictionaries, 
they're all going to say something like this. Like one of the first very top definitions is going to be the worship of God or supernatural power. Something it's going to be something along those lines. But if you go back to the core of Buddhism and how it begins, there's no God in this picture. It's, we're going to be talking about a human who is going to teach about how one deals with suffering, more or less. That's in, in, in the nutshell. That's where we're going to go with this. And um, so it's different that way. But we'll talk about it. It goes on later in the variations to where what some will call the cosmic Buddha and the Buddha who has supernatural powers and all this. But that's going to develop later. The original version we're talking about isn't that way. We're going to go back and talk about a human that walked the planet. And most people who study this, historians, what have you, would tell you that we're talking about a person that actually lived. And so I want to begin by just telling the story of this individual who lived. And when you uh, begin to look at it, he was the son of King Shudahadana and Queen Maya. And he was born in the year 566 B.C. And he was born in what we would now call southern um, Nepal. And um, his name was Siddhartha Gautama. And if you start studying Buddhism, you'll hear that was his name, but you'll hear more often and more frequently the name Shakyamuni, which means the sage of the Chakra tribe. That's who he was. That was his name that was given. And he, and he walked. And his dad was the king. His dad was training him to ultimately become a king. And uh, part of this, for whatever reason, this is part of the, the story, is that his dad didn't want him exposed to all the harshness of the world. So allegedly, his dad would do things like clear the streets when he would come to town, when he would leave the palace and go to town and all of this. And um, he went on to marry and have a child. But then when he was in his young 30s, he left the palace one day and he encountered real life. He saw four things. This is what they this is the teaching and what they say Then he went out and he saw somebody that was sick. He went out and he saw somebody that was old. He went out and he saw a corpse and he saw an ascetic, somebody that um, gives up all luxury and lives very crudely. Right. These were the four things that he saw and it rocked his world. That's kind of how the teaching goes. And so at this point, he decides, I don't know what truth is and what this is about, and I need to go in search of it. And so he leaves the palace and he has this great going forth where he does this. And today, whenever somebody becomes a Buddhist monk or nun, they reenact this going forth and this giving up of his palace and going out. And at first he went out and he lived as an ascetic. He lived in very minimal, harsh conditions that didn't ultimately lead where he wanted it to go. So he eventually went to this place called the Middle Path which still holds to this day where they try to hold sort of a middle ground on things. And of course, they're later on in Christianity, their popes will say moderation and everything. So it's sort of that same kind of deal. And then he goes on. And this is the part, if you've ever studied it anywhere in high school or college or wherever, you know this story. But there finally comes this day where he's under the bow tree and he's meditating. And he has this moment where everything changes. And it's this moment of enlightenment. It's this moment where there's this, um, they'll talk about this great blowing out of his, of ignorance. The dream of ignorance is over and the great blossoming of wisdom. And the state that you'll hear it referred to is nirvana. Um, it's, it's not just a band from Seattle. Um, <laughs> 
that it's this notion that the word itself means blowing out or extinguishing. And what they're really going at on that part of it is that it's a blowing out or extinguishing of these, um, of these, of desire. And I'll say more about it sort of in a fine tuned way, fine tuned way in a moment. After that starts his whole career in teaching and preaching to his followers. And, um, it's said at this point that he turns the wheel of Dharma, the wheel of teaching. And so when you look at the symbols, you'll see the top one there is the wheel, the wheel of Dharma, that, he's, that he turns that. And I'm going to tell you in just a few moments about his first sermon, which is his most famous sermon, where he allegedly lays out all of the, many of the truths of, of Buddhism, right? So, but this first part. So then he goes on, he lives his life teaching this way. And when he gets in, into about the year that he's about 80 years old, um, he lays down between two trees and we would say he dies. But the way they would talk about this is this other version of Nirvana called Peri Nirvana or the sort of the ultimate Nirvana, which means and, and Eric is going to pre is going to talk later about Hinduism. But you got to remember that Buddhism develops in the context of Hinduism and part of what he believes is the cycle of reincarnation and all this stuff going on. Well, well, this parinirvana is escape from that. It's getting beyond this whole sequence, samsara, they call it, of being dying and being reborn and all this, that he goes beyond that. And I'll say a little bit more about it when we do some, when we talk about it in a few moments. But that's kind of um, a quick picture of, of his life, that he lived on the earth. He was human. That's what he did. And then we go from there to begin to speak, to talk about what is it that he taught and how did it go from there, from this person to what people believe and, and 500 million people believe in the world today and follow. And so I don't know whether it was his first sermon or not, but it's attributed as his first sermon as his most important sermon. And again, for those of you who've studied it, this will come back to things you've heard. But in this first sermon that he gives, he talks about the four noble truths. That's what he teaches. And then everything kind of develops from there. And the four noble truths are, are pretty straightforward. Um, at, the, at the same time, each one could be a long, 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 long discussion. So know that I'm just kind of giving you the headline on what it is. The very first uh, one of the four noble truths um, is that suffering exists. This whole notion, um, as they say, that it's the dukkha. Um, that it exists. And then the second uh, noble truth is that the reason dukkha or suffering exists is because of the tanha, which is basically saying the reason suffering exists, it's frequently translated as because you have this desire, you have desire for things. Other people will translate it as a selfish cravings that you have. That's, that's what's going on with that. So you have suffering, you've got selfish cravings for things. That's what leads to it. He would, then the third noble truth that he puts out there is that you can go beyond this. You can get beyond tanha, that you can get away from these selfish cravings. That's the third point, just saying you can do that. And the fourth thing is the prescription that he gives. How do you do that? And it is the, the eightfold path is what you'll hear about. So he's going to talk about these eight things that can help you leave behind these selfish cravings and ultimately lead you on this path where you're not going to suffer and where you can go your direction to find 
towards nirvana. So that's kind of the, the quick overview of this, this first sermon. And then we're going to dig down in a second on those eight. Um, there's a whole lot going on here with a bunch of other things. Like, they've got three different versions of suffering. They've got, you know, all this different kinds of depth that I'm, that I'm just going to walk by. I just don't have time to go into what those different kinds of suffering are. But part of the things when they get into existence is they'll talk about the non-self. And I, I'm going to pause for just one second to talk about this, because in part, this is one of the places where they would find hope. So part of what this says is that you are not permanent from moment to moment. You have this aggregate of things that continues, but you're not, in a sense, you're not permanent from moment to moment. And it's not meant to be a pessimistic thing. It's ultimately an optimistic thing, because part of what it's saying is that things continue to change, and so everything can be made new. So when you're walking into your darkest chapter of life, you don't need to, you can take it more lightly because everything is going to change. That, there's, that things are going to keep flowing a little bit like a river, that things are going to change that way. So they have this sort of built-in sort of a bit of optimism that happens that way. That's sort of what the non-self is that happens in it, right? I want to turn from there. I'm just going to walk past lots and lots and lots of stuff, and I'm going to go back to the Eightfold Path now to go to what the Buddha is ultimately going to describe as these are the eight things you need to do if you're going to let go of these selfish cravings and get beyond suffering. All right. And um, the first one of these is that you've got to have the right views. And basically what he's saying is if your rational intellect isn't satisfied, um, you're going to be stuck. So that's kind of, so you've got to have the right frame of mind in all this. You've got to work behind that to get to, to the right place or whatever, whatever it is. The second, uh, of the eight is that you've got to have the right intent. You've got to know what you want and have your whole heart into what you're doing with it. The third thing is that you've got to have the right speech, that you want your, your speech to be part of what is headed in the right direction and moving in the right direction, right? The fourth thing is that you've got to have the right conduct. You've got to do the right things that are going to back all these, all the different things we're talking about. The fifth thing is you've got to have the right employment, the right occupation. And um, you've got to have something that doesn't destroy life, but promotes life. And if you want to be at the pinnacle of that, you need to be a monk or a nun in their tradition. Right. So that that that's it. Um, the sixth thing is effort. You've got to have the right effort. You've got to. So this isn't the thing where you, I mean, you've got to put in the effort and go all in on this thing. Uh, the seventh thing is that you've got to have the right state of mind, um, that you've got to be in the right place in, in how you approach this. Um, and the final thing is really has to do with meditation, that it's meditational attainment, a right concentration, the right meditational power. And um, a number of Buddhist lamas will tell you that these eight things are meant to be ideals, that it's not that you're going to obtain all these before nirvana, but so they're not absolutes, but they're meant to be ideals that are held out there. And they're the things that are going to move you and project you in the direction of, towards finding nirvana. So to kind of go back to nirvana for a second, um, nirvana has these two different components to it. It's again, it's this idea that it's now that we've kind of walked through this part of it, it's going to be the blowing out or the extinguishing of the self-cravings. 
part of it. That's the first aspect of what nirvana is. And the second part, as I said, was this peri-nirvana that's ultimate nirvana. It's the nirvana of you're getting out of the cycle that they've been, that they learned in their context from Hinduism of reincarnation and coming back like this. And, and the Buddha would say that you have no soul. So he's not talking about the extinguishing of your soul, but he's saying you're out of that cycle. And he would never say more about what it meant. But people have gone on to say that they think what he wanted to say with it was that it was a removing of boundaries. So you're not stuck in the boundary of this pattern, but you're, the boundaries are gone and, and you move on this way. That is a super fast, in a nutshell, version of Buddhism. Um, what I can tell you is that from starting back in 566 BC, Buddhism spreads, and it's going to spread from, as I said, the southern part of Nepal. It's going to continue to spread throughout all of Asia. It's going to keep working its way through, and then last century to Europe and to the United States and to different, different places where it hadn't been before, and it just has continued to grow that way. There are 500 million Buddhists in the world today. That's kind of where they, where they are. And there, there are a number of things I would say about it. Um, one is that a lot of people like Buddhism um, because, uh, well, a number of reasons. One, it's, it's not something that is full of conflict. It's something that's, that's considered full of peace. It is something that is, um, you know, the Buddha preached against authority. I may yet become a Buddhist because of that. No, no, just joking. No, just joking. Just joking. Um, but there are lots of things that we as Christians would say that we like about it in the sense that it, it teaches serenity. It teaches meditation, um, that it's going to talk about not holding on to possessions and materialism. There are lots of things that we would affirm about Buddhism, right? But there are also, we'd have to say, lots of huge differences, and I want to go to some of those. And I'm going to credit um, Adam Hamilton, who's written a book on, on this and world religions for, for a lot of what I'm going to say here. But um, one of the huge differences we would begin to talk about is the place of God. And uh, so within Buddhism, as I kind of started out saying, the Buddha never claimed to be a God, wasn't a God, was a human who lived. And the Buddha himself would have been agnostic as far as his teaching goes. He doesn't say there's a God or there's not a God. He's just trying to teach patterns of how you deal with things, right? So whereas contrast that to Christianity, where we would say God is at the center of everything and that ultimately Jesus is where you would start. Like if you're not a Christian and you're starting this journey, the first thing we would tell you is go look at Jesus as God and go look at what he taught, what he preached, how he lived, what he did, and then let things go from there. And it's all focused in on there. And we would say that not only that, but that our God is the one who entered into suffering itself as something that takes place. So, so it's a very different place between Buddhists and Christians and what they do with this notion of God as we, as we contemplate this. So that's, that's the first thing. I'm going to give like four or five of these. The second um, big contrast that I would put out there has to do with the aim of life. And if you look at what Buddhists say... Um, sort of the, the aim of life is to deal with suffering. That's the biggest problem, the biggest issue, is dealing with suffering. And so we're going to talk about these different ways to try to find this breakthrough and this release from that. Christians would say the biggest issue um, is sin. 
and our fallenness and brokenness of where we go from, from other places. And, and they're complete different um, characterizations of what the problem is. And there's also a completely different opposite, 180% opposite um, prescriptions about how you solve the problems. Because Buddhists would say, that's the issue. The way you solve it is detachment. Christians would say, this is the issue. The way you solve it is by more attachment. You're going to attach more to God, that you're meant to love him with all your heart and your mind and your soul, that it's more attachment, not less. But if you think about it, um, I think there are lots of ways we could say Buddhism teaches sort of a half truth. This is unapologetically me giving a Christian version of it. But part of what Christianity does teach is to let go of of the material and let go of all these things in order to receive. And I'll say more about that in a minute. So I think in that way, it kind of goes it goes kind of halfway there to what we're talking about. Um, the third thing that we would talk about is the outlook on human suffering and the whole ap- approach to it. As I said, you know, the, the, the approach of Buddhists to suffering is you're suffering because of your desire. If you don't want anything, you won't hurt. So let it go. And I have a friend of mine who's, uh, who spoke on Buddhism a number of years ago, and I, I, I still laugh every time I think about the example he gave. So I'll give this. This was, uh, if anybody knows Michael Mills, he gave this example when he was talking on something. But he talked about how every person who's ever had a breakup is a two-beer Buddhist. <laughs> and what he went on to say was after a breakup, after the second beer, you say, I'm never going to love again. <laughs> that it's this detachment. I'm, I'm letting go of it all, right? The two-beer Buddhist. But that's the idea that Buddhism says you hurt because you want and you're holding on and, and, and you need to let it go. The Christian answer um, to suffering I've mentioned before is way more complex, um, but I'm going to give you the super quick version of it. We would say, I would say that there are about five things we would say very quickly about Christians and suffering. We would say, acknowledge up front that it's a mystery. We would say, we would say quickly that um, the God entered into our suffering. So whatever you want to say about suffering, it's not God who's out somewhere else remote from it. And we're left here saying, where are you? He's in it. He's been betrayed, sped upon, mocked suffered physically, flocked, put on the cross, all of it. He's entered into our suffering. Um, I think we would say third thing is that God comforts us if we're willing to receive it um, in our suffering, that he will comfort us. I think we would also say that God will use it for his glory if we surrender it. doesn't matter what's happened. If we give it to him, he will somehow use it for good. It's not that he wanted it, but he'll use it for good. I think that's part of the, the promises of Scripture. And the final thing that we would say about suffering is that in the end, it's going to be made right. In the end, there'll be no tears. In the end, everything will come to the place. Those are the, that's my f- five quick bullet points for how Christians view suffering. But it's way different than what we're talking about and how um, Buddhists approach it. Um, the fourth thing that, that I would say is a huge difference has to do with effort. As I said, one of the part of the eightfold noble, noble path, or the eightfold path has to do with the right effort. And part of what a Buddhist would say is you've got this effort to get where you're going, which is completely opposite to what Christians would say. Because while we may talk about needing to cooperate and to receive and welcome or whatever, at the end of the day, we would say it has nothing to do with what you earn. It's not about your effort. It's nothing you can do. It's 100% about grace. 
And sometimes I'll get questions about why in the world do you um, Episcopalians and Catholics and different people baptize infants? Because they haven't done the magic walk yet. And it's like, because we're reminded that it's about grace. It is 100% grace. Now, parents and godparents, everybody else are going to help them grow into those things. But it's at the end of the day, our faith is about grace. And there is, there is complete um, rest in knowing you don't have to earn it. You may have to be open to it and receive it, but you don't have to put forth the right effort. It's all 100% about grace. So there are some really um, great things that they can teach us that we can learn from them and look at what they, what they do in Buddhism. But there's some massively huge differences that I think we want to hold on to and really contemplate. And um, I encourage you to think about those this week as you go forward. Um, and we'll pick up next week with another religion. Let's pray. Gracious Lord, we thank you for loving us and for creating us and for calling us on a journey. And Lord, we ask that you would help us to receive your grace, uh, that we could know your love more fully and share it, and that we could love everyone in the world more fully. We pray that you would help us to let go of the things that dominate us that are not from you. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.